Jesus, in the midst of just all the upheaval, we pray for your presence to come. We know that it is not about our technique or our goodness or our words, but about your spirit and your power that makes the difference. So God, in this place, we pray for your power to come upon us, to shape and transform us, to convict us, Jesus, that we might know you, that we might be transformed from the inside out. God, whether we are in this place or in our homes, we pray that you would come. God, whether we are distracted or we are present, we pray that you would come. God, whether we are in entrenched patterns of sin and brokenness or whether we feel free and full of your grace this morning, we pray that you would come. God, shatter our expectations that we might know your holiness. Because God, you are holy. You are a holy God. Come, rescue us sinners that we might know the glory of your presence. In the powerful and profound and beautiful name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Down here in the sanctuary, Fellowship Hall, up in the balcony, I see you. Well done. Uh, In the basement, I don't see you, but I know you're there, and I know you're in houses around the bay around us with this morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Tony. I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Wellspring. Uh, If you're new visiting, we are glad you're here. Um, All right, so we started 2020 in 1 Corinthians, and then uh, a little hiccup uh, nationally and internationally happened. Uh, Some people call it COVID. Uh, And we took a little break from 1 Corinthians, and now we're starting back in. Last week, we did a little introduction, and this week, we're going to chapter 5. Now, if you weren't with us last week, a little bit of background. Paul, he's an apostle sent by God. He's going through the Greco-Roman world, and he ends up in this place called Corinth. He spends 18 months there. He builds a church. He invests himself. He gives himself to this people that they might know God and practice his way. Paul leaves to plant other churches. About three years elapsed between the writing of 1 Corinthians and his time there. Paul gets both questions from the church at Corinth and he gets some gossip behind the scenes from Chloe's people and they start telling him what's really going on in Corinth, right? And that's what 1 Corinthians is. Paul addressing their questions and him dealing with what's really going on on the ground. Now, when we get to chapter 5, we learn that there's some really uncomfortable stuff happening in Corinth. In particular, uh, I'm gonna, and I'm going to use the most generic language as possible because I know that there's kids and others around and listening, uh, that a man is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And so Paul hears of this and he decides, you know what, I probably should say something. Now on one level, I think we think like we just entered like Jerry Springer. Like what is going on here? And if there's a part of me, if I'm super honest, there's a part of me that just wants to skip this part of chapter 5, right? Like, seriously, I need to talk about this? Uh, You know, because most of us, this is not like our day-to-day reality, 
you know? This is not something we think, you know, the question I really have. Like, is this okay? Like, most of us are like, obviously not. But one of the reasons that we teach through books versus just doing topical sermons all year is so that we are forced to deal with these uncomfortable, awkward passages that we would prefer to just skip over. And the reason we do this is because we have a conviction that God has something for us even in these awkward, uncomfortable passages that we'd prefer weren't always in the Bible. Consider this. Pew, in 2019, June of 2019, did a survey on the Catholic priest abuse scandals. They found that 9 in 10 Americans that they surveyed had been familiar with these scandals, right? They know about it. And... When, you, when they dove a little bit deeper, what they found was that while 80, 81% of Protestants think that abuse within the church is an ongoing problem, not just something that happened once, but is ongoing, not just in the Catholic church, but in the Protestant church, 81% said, yeah, it's an ongoing problem. Nearly 70% of attenders had never heard someone from up front ever even mention or talk about it. 81% think it's an ongoing problem, and yet almost all of them have never heard someone ever mention it. Why? It's super awkward. It's awkward. So this morning, we're going to lean into the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians to talk about something that is awkward, because I want us to be the kind of people here at Wellspring who don't just avoid awkward conversations so that we can feel more comfortable. Because one thing we'll learn about this chapter is that Paul, the guy who founded the church in Corinth, also isn't the kind of guy who's going to avoid awkward conversations. He's, going to, he's not going to pretend like things are okay when they are not. All right, so I want to set the stage a bit. Right, we get to chapter 5. Paul's living in Ephesus, and he gets some pastoral insight, gossip from Chloe's people about some stuff that's going on in Corinth. Now, I want you to imagine this. Paul gets the gossip. He's in Ephesus. He writes a letter. This letter goes by, by boat, likely, across over to Corinth. Someone from the church gets it. The entire community gathers. They're all sitting there. This guy gets this, stands up in front of the entire community, and then reads this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're sitting in this room. No one has talked to the guy who is sleeping with his mother-in-law. No one's brought it up. No one's challenged him. You're sitting there, and now for the first time, 
Someone stands up here, you read Paul's letter, and then they say, the guy, for the man has his father's wife, and everyone either looks at him or looks at the ground. Have you ever been in a really awkward moment? That's what people do, right? They either look at the person or they look at the ground like, did he really just say that? Have you ever been like in a pin drop moment where it's like everyone's just like not even breathing? They're just like, what's going to happen? That's right now. Now, there's a lot going on here, but I want to highlight at least this. Paul does not ignore the situation. He doesn't avoid the awkward conversation. He sees it, and then he acts. Now, historically, it's a little hard to unpack exactly what is happening here. Now, we know the word word had in verse 1 means that they are sleeping together. Now, it's really unlikely that the woman is a part of the community, otherwise Paul would have mentioned her. So it's more likely she's actually not a part of the church, but he is. Now, it's really important, though, to recognize there is a huge double standard in the Greco-Roman world between the way men and women are treated. So it's super possible, and really likely, actually, at this point, that the woman, who's not a part of the church, has already been socially, emotionally, and likely physically punished for her actions. That has almost certainly happened. While the man's actions, this guy who attends their church, have gone totally unaddressed. Now, we don't know if the man and the woman, the son and the the mother-in-law, you know, whether this is consensual or forced, we don't know. But I want you to consider this quote from this Greek guy named Demos. This captures the ethos, ethos of how men viewed women in the Greek of Greco-Roman world. Gosh, brutal. Greco-Roman world. This is what he writes. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our persons. But wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. I mean, can you feel just the profound misogyny in that culture? I mean, the unbelievable power disparity, the unbelievable ways in which men feel like they can do whatever they want with women. These would have been normal assumptions in the Greco-Roman world. What makes this case so contemptuous is that this is happening in the church, and the entire Greco-Roman world would have said, this is wrong. And yet, even though the entire society says this is totally inappropriate, kind of like child abuse is today, no one in the church says anything to this guy. They just kind of let it go. Maybe he had power, maybe he had influence, maybe he was well-liked, or maybe he's charismatic, maybe he's really financially generous. We don't know. What we do know is that Paul does not avoid the difficult conversation as people in the church do. Concretely, he says to the Corinthians two things, one emotional and one more practical. First, he tells the Corinthians, you guys should mourn. You should be sad. This is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I remember one afternoon, a friend of mine, uh, he came in uh, gave me a call on the phone, and he had found all this evidence 
that his wife had been cheating on him. And we met up and he showed me all this evidence that was just horrendous and painful to look at. And what do you do in that moment? Like this has happened. You mourn. What else can you do? You grieve, you weep, you just experience the pain with that person. But you don't just sit there, right? You don't mourn indefinitely. Eventually, we called his wife, and the three of us met with all the evidence out there, and it was this horrible, horrible experience. But it was also necessary. See, the thing is, Paul doesn't provide, prescribe indefinite mourning, but he calls the Corinthians to action. Right? Almost certainly, the woman's actions are being addressed already. Right? Women don't get away with adultery in the Greco-Roman world. But the man was living as if nothing had happened. And Paul knows this is wrong. Right? So he uses the power he has in his disposal to address the situation. He tells the congregation, verse 2, remove the guy. This is literally the verb to carry away or to carry off. Right? Take him outside the boundary of the church and leave him there. Verse 5, he tells him to deliver or to give over the man to Satan, right? the adversary of God, one who is opposed to God. Give him over to Satan because this guy's clearly opposed to what God wants to do in the church. Now, you might wonder, whoa, Paul, that's super intense. Why do you kick this guy out? Richard Hayes is a theologian scholar. He relates this passage to the American church abuse scandals, and he says this, No healing is possible at all without clear, public confrontation of the offender. Paul knows that you cannot create safety at Corinth and in the church in Corinth without clearly determining the ethical boundaries within a body, what is permissible and what is not. There's a study uh, out of Alabama about kids, fences, and playgrounds. What they found is this. Psychologists, you know, gathered a bunch of kids with their teacher, and what they found is if they put a kids in this big open area with no fence, the kids are way more likely to kind of anxiously huddle around the teacher. If you put those exact same kids and that exact same teacher in a backyard or an area that has a fence, the kids are way more likely to play and range and go all over the place. Why? The boundary creates safety. And the truth is, the same thing happens in communities. When lies go unaddressed, when unhealthy behaviors run rampant, when the truth is hidden and rumors run wide, people cannot emotionally and relationally attach to God and one another. What do we do? We hide and we huddle. Right? By not confronting the guy in the church in Corinth, Right? The Corinthians are creating an unsafe space. And Paul is saying, this guy has to leave so we know what is in, what is out. What is okay, what is not. What does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? And what does it look like to just do your own thing? Paul knows that removing this guy is not only the best thing for the church to create this kind of clarity, it also is the best thing for the larger community because now you're signaling to people outside the church, hey, we care. Yeah, you guys think this is wrong? Yeah, we do too. Paul also thinks it's the best for this guy. 
Paul hopes this will be a wake-up call for him so that he'll change his ways. Paul gets at this, right? He says, so that what? His flesh may be destroyed, but saved, right? Flesh. He's, so this guy stops doing whatever he wants to do and submits his life to Jesus so that he then practices the way of Jesus in the community that honors the community and the people within it and outside of it. Now, Paul gets into his thinking about why this is so necessary in verses 6 through 8. This is what he writes. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover land, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, full disclosure, I'm not much of a baker, but I also have been watching a lot of this show with my wife, The Great British Bake Off, and I've learned a lot. I remember as a kid, I would make cookies or whatever, and they'd say, like, baking soda or baking powder, and you do this, like, tiny little scoop, and I just thought it was, like, pointless. Like, this thing has no flavor. Like, what is the point of this? Now, watching this show, I've, been, I've learned a lot about how to proof and how to, how to bake. Thank you. Thank you. I got a little credit back there. I used the right lingo. The bakers are like, yes, I know about that. Okay. So one of the things that these things do is they're leavening agents, right? They produce gas while baking that allows the bread to rise. And that tiny scoop of baking soda affects the whole loaf, right? It's not like it just gets into a little part of it. It affects the whole thing. So Paul's point is pretty simple. Both, bo both large and small actions in a church community have consequences. Also, if you notice, if, if you didn't come from a Jewish background, you might miss, miss the illusion Paul is making here between leaven and Passover. If you know some Jewish friends, they might do this. Before Passover, one of the things that Jewish people often do is they clean their whole house of leaven before the Passover. They'll like scrub through all the cupboards, clean everything. So there's literally like in the kitchen, there is not one drop of leftover leaven anywhere. So that when they bake their unleavened bread for Passover, they know it doesn't have one speck of leaven in it. So Paul is saying something like this, right? Jesus, the Passover lamb died for you that you might live free from sin. Don't let the leaven of sin creep back into your life. Don't let it accumulate in your life for lack of attention. Take it seriously, because guess what? It doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone. It's important to realize in chapter 5, the flow Paul is getting into. Right? First, he starts with this extreme example. Someone in Corinth is sleeping with their mother-in-law that everyone agrees this is not good. And then he moves to leaven, little tiny granules that seem so harmless without impact, and yet they affect the whole loaf. Paul is trying to tell us in the church, right, that a church prevents the larger issues by being attentive to the smaller ones. 
In fact, he makes the case as he continues in chapter 5 that the church needs to hold itself actually to a higher standard than the community around it. Right? So that when the city of Corinth is looking at the church in Corinth and saying, what is your guys' problem? We know something is wrong. Right? And the same thing happens when, in, when it's in Corinth or New York or Pacific Grove. Right? When the outside community is looking at us and we all agree this is not okay, but the church is doing it anyway, we know that the church has diverted from the way of Jesus. We serve a God who wants to transform us and love us so that we don't stay stuck in the same patterns of sin, same patterns of brokenness as when we first entered the church's doors. That we might be witnesses by our transformation of God's transforming power in our lives. Paul, right, in verses 9 through 13, which comes next, he reminds the Christians, hey guys, we gotta, we gotta, hold ourselves to a higher standards. He reminds them, right, they're not supposed to conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the power of Jesus. He tells them to stop looking outside the church, saying, man, what's their problem, and start focusing on ourselves versus just looking outside and judging everyone else. This is what he writes. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. Basically saying, hey guys, everyone messes up. Everyone sins. If you say don't associate with any sinners, you're out of luck because they're everywhere. Verse 11, but I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I had to do with judging the outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. That last quote about purging, this is from Deuteronomy. And this is getting into a bigger picture of what the church is meant to be. Right, the Israelites, they've been freed from Egypt. I right, remember the Passover illusion. And now God, in the first century, through the person of Jesus, is forming a unique and distinct people. Right, they're meant to be a people that are good and not evil. And Paul is saying, you guys, remember your calling. You are called to image God in the world. You need to take your lives and your actions and your behaviors seriously because you represent, you image a holy God in the world. And this is the thing, guys, Paul's saying, you know, and God has things to say about sexuality and money and swindling. Right? Swindling is using deception to get other people's stuff or money. Right? God has stuff to say about worship and drinking and reviling, right? criticizing people in abusive or angry manner. Right? God has stuff to say about this, and we should take that into consideration as we live our lives, not just do our own thing. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, don't ignore God's wisdom, thinking somehow you know better. Right? God has a calling for you, Corinth, for Wellspring, for church in every place and location in the world, to image our holy God wherever we go. 
yeah, we're broken, we're messed up, but we are called to a high calling that forces us to look at the leaven in our lives and say, should that be there? And the truth is, that's awkward. The truth is, most of us don't want to do that. And Paul's saying, yeah, but that has an effect, and it builds up. And you think these small things don't matter, but in the end, the leaven affects the whole loaf, and not just you, but the whole body. Barna did a study a few years ago on the secular community's perception of Christians. What they found is pretty sad. They found that only 13% of people thought Christians both exhibited Christ-like beliefs and actions. Right? So people in the secular community, 13% of them said, yeah, I think Christians behave like Jesus. More often they said that they experienced Christians to be more like Pharisees, pointing fingers at them rather than dealing with their own issues. I put a magnifying glass on the culture and avoiding seeing the truth within themselves. Right? Inverting the very wisdom Paul is suggesting here. And Paul's trying to reground this group of people that he discipled for 18 months but have drifted on their way. He's trying to reground them in the way of Jesus. He's trying to remind them that, hey guys, your calling is to image a holy God in the world. And I think some of us, when I read this, I know a little bit, like, I'm like, kick him out? That feels intense. And I think what happens when I have that emotional response is that I have lost touch with the holiness of our God. God is incredibly gracious, but God is also holy. And God calls us to something that I think sometimes we don't want to face, right? The sin and the brokenness and the patterns in our lives that are destructive, we don't want to face it because we rely on the grace of God, which is awesome. We are saved by the grace of God, but God also calls us to be transformed so that we image God's holiness in the world. And God is inviting us to pursue holiness while we are saved by God's grace. Welcome to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Welcome back to 1 Corinthians. Yes! All right, so what does this look like in the everyday life of the church? What does this look like in your marriage, in your relationships, in your workplace, on your street? What does this look like as you actually take this text that was written, a personal letter that is written to this body and now translate 2,000 years later? You know, how do, we, how do we make sense of this? To begin with, I think if we want to be the kind of people who can address the hard stuff, and this is what the Corinthians couldn't do. They couldn't have a hard conversation that needed to happen. But if we want to be the kind of people that can address the hard stuff, I think we need to be the kind of people that start with looking at our own, with o- taking ownership of our own sin and brokenness in our lives. It starts with taking personal ownership. Right? The reason Paul gets to this situation in Corinth is because this guy does not repent on his own. He doesn't just acknowledge before everyone, I messed up. He goes on pretending like, if I don't say anything, maybe no one will, maybe no one will mention it. He does not take ownership. 
So often, right, in life, we focus on, right, the splinter in someone else's eye, and we ignore this massive log in our own, which is Jesus sort of as the stand-up comic, just sort of illustrating, like, the silly ways we behave. But we do this. But Jesus is super clear. Jesus says, the origin of sin is not there, it's here. Jesus says, uh, Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Sin starts here. The only way we can deal with sin personally is to take ownership of it. As a follower of Jesus, our primary focus needs to be on bringing our heart into the presence of Jesus, that he might heal us and reveal what is really going on to us. And when we realize in the presence of God that we are broken, sinful creatures, that we're not as, you know, when we look around at our friends and we think, I'm not that bad, you know, but then you get into the presence of a holy God and you realize, whoa, I have a really long way to go. The goal at that point isn't to hide or pretend, like, I hope no one notices, right, but to rather acknowledge that sin in the presence of God, which is what we call confession, and then repent and say, all right, God, help me to do it differently next time. First Corinthians 5, I think, really challenges to look in our own lives and in our own relationships, in our own hearts, in our own minds, and in our own souls and say, what do you need to own today? What is the leaven that you need to sweep out so that you can image God in the world? The second thing I think 1 Corinthians 5 leans into is, all right, so what if you're on the receiving end of someone's sin? Right? What if someone in the community hurts you? What are you supposed to do? Right? What are you supposed to do about peacemaking? Right? The goal of 1 Corinthians as a whole letter is to deal with divisiveness in the church. 1 Corinthians 5 is all about one example. What happens when someone sins against you in the church? Well, Matthew 18, 15, Jesus gives some pretty clear advice. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. Right, Jesus tells us, start face to face. It starts in private. Right, this is where our culture often gets so messed up. We start texting, we start emailing, we start social media blasting. We do all kinds of things other than actually talk to someone straightforward, honestly, and say, hey, can we talk about this? Now, this is the core of Jesus' peacemaking ethic. Now, I realize this is super hard for us, often in a super tolerant culture and in a culture where we want to avoid judging others. And we don't want to judge anyone, so more often than not, right, we sweep it under the carpet. And honestly, I just want to say, like, often that's fine. Like, we don't need to bring every single little annoyance up to people, right? And sometimes those little things are actually our issues, that we're thinking is someone else's issue, but really is our own. I remember I led this trip a while back. I was in my 20s to India, and I uh, brought a couple recent Stanford grads with me. 
And we were in Calcutta, and one of them just loved taking pictures. And we were going to our first meeting, and I was nervous. I get a little anxious because I wanted the person I was meeting with, the partner we were going to be partnering with, to feel like we respected and honored them. And I thought one of the ways I could do that was to be on time. But this dude in my group was taking picture of every snail and rickshaw and tree and house. And I swear, it added like an hour and a half to our journey. And I was getting super mad. And I was like, every time he took a picture, I was anxious and frustrated and just taking it out on him. And then in the end, like I was like, what is your problem? But in the end, I think it was my issue. I was carrying this anxiety that this person was going to judge me or I wasn't going to respect them. I had all this anxiety and stress. And it's like, actually, it was my issue because I could have talked to him really plainly before. I could have set better parameters. I could have made it a longer walk to get us, you know, had set better time. And in that process, right, I was taking my issue out on him. He was just a recent college grad who'd never been to India and he wanted to like take pictures. You know, sometimes it's a super small deal. Sometimes it's our deal. But I think we also need to be careful here. Because sometimes we use these as justifications to also then never bring anything up. It's like, oh, that's not a big deal, not a big deal. But if over 10 years you've never brought anything up, you're probably avoiding. And then what happens, especially if it's an ongoing thing, is we start to leak. So rather than talking to the person, we start gossiping now. Now we start leaking out those emotions because our anxiety has to go somewhere. So where does it go? Oh, it goes to this person and it goes to this person, right? And our, and our resentment starts to leak out and you start talking about other people. You start thinking about them and all the, the mean, horrible things they are doing, right? Now your brain is obsessing over them and you're leaking all over the place. Why? Because you avoided the obvious conversation 10 months ago. Anyone ever been there? Just me? Okay. I just want to be super clear. Avoiding over the long term does not make you a peacemaker. It makes you a peace faker. Let's just be really clear about that. That is called peace faking. That is peace faking. And sadly... The consequences are actually way bigger than we want to think. Because this is the thing. The biggest downside of peace faking is that we actually don't become the kind of people that are trained to have difficult conversations. Because these small irritations, these small conflicts are actually the training ground in church life, where we then learn how to have difficult conversations. We learn to apologize. We learn to listen. We learn to be empathetic. We learn to pay attention to what other people are saying and honestly communicate. So that when those really hard things happen, we can actually listen. We can actually be honest. But when we avoid those, and then we get to the big conversation, we are not equipped to do it with integrity and honesty, and love. So we either peace fake, or we become grumpy and mean and irritable in those conversations, and we peace break. Jesus is inviting us to be peacemakers, to be the kind of people that in Corinth and in Pacific Grove, when something happens, 
we have honest conversations so that we image God in the world. I think this is one of the reasons why the church often has such a hard time talking about things like politics and race and misogyny and abuse. It's because we're so often avoiding the small conflicts that we cannot be honest and kind in the hard conversations. Now, I also realize sometimes in church life, Sometimes we need a sounding board, and I think that's totally legit and cool. If someone does something to you and you're like, huh, I think I need to talk to that person, it's also okay to say, I'm going to talk to one trusted person and say, do you think I should bring this up or is this my issue? That's legit. Our hearts are deceptive, so it is good sometimes to talk to another person. That's great. But if you find yourself talking to one and then two and then three people, you are now gossiping. You do not need a whole board to advise you. One person that you trust, that you can bounce off, and then based on their, their truth and your discernment, go talk to the person if you feel like you need to or repent on your own and apologize to them. I also want to say, that if in Wellspring something incredibly uncomfortable happens for you that makes you feel unsafe and you're just really thrown off, I want you to I give you permission to immediately talk to a staff or an elder or someone on the board. Especially if any suspicious behavior uh, around children, anything around youth, any inappropriate touch or racist comments or misogynistic statements should be immediately reported to staff or elders so that we can address it. Our hope at Wellspring is to create a space where we are shaped into the image of our holy God. The thing is, that means that we need to till our hearts and be open to God convicting us. Because I'll just full disclosure, all of us are sinners in this room. None of us are perfect yet. And we need to be open to talking with one another, honestly, and with sincerity and kindness and humility when things go off the rails. I want to invite the worship team back up here. And as we enter into our uh, second worship set, I have two questions that I'd just like you to kind of consider as we, as we lean in during worship. The first is this. Right, when I'm here sitting here talking or standing here talking about sin and the heart and patterns of brokenness, what comes up for you? I don't mean like, tell me right now. I mean like, what, what honestly surfaces? Do you have like a fear of exposure? I remember when I first uh, started going to churches, I was always afraid that like the Holy Spirit would tell someone my deepest, darkest secrets. And then like someone on stage would be like, you there, you know, and be like, this is what you struggle with. But I think the truth is, if we're honest, most of us already know. Most of us don't need someone on a stage to say, this is where you are broken. Most of us already know. 
the question is not whether we know, because I think usually we do. Usually the question is, what do we do about it? Because I think most of the time what we do is we just stuff it back down, we pretend like it's there, and we do not allow the, the health, the air, the refreshment of the Holy Spirit to heal us. What is that area for you? What does it look like for you to sit in the presence of our holy God and allow the spirit of conviction to fall on you? What does it look like for you to mourn in the presence of Jesus, of the patterns of sin and brokenness that infect you and all those you love, whether you see it or not? The leaven does not stay in the individual granule. It goes through the whole loaf. And second, as we enter into worship, as I'm talking about maybe someone sinning against you or this peacemaking idea, I just invite you to listen to the Spirit's word to you. Have you been peace faking? Are you more on the peace breaking side? Do you feel like God is saying to you, or do you feel like, ah, is he saying, good and faithful servant, thank you for the way you have been a peacemaker in my body, the church. God, speak to us. God, bring to mind people maybe in our minds that we need to apologize to, people that we need to say, I am sorry to, or people that we need to turn to and say, man, I think we need to talk. I have some bitterness. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. We know that it is not by our words, but by the power of your spirit that we are transformed. And whether we are at home on a couch, distracted by the many things, or in this building, sort of thinking about our masks or all the protocols, God, we just ask that you would come in the power of your spirit and awaken us to your holiness. God, you are holy. God, you are good. God, we realize we bring so little to the table. We ask, God, that you would awaken in us, God, a desire to be holy like you are, that we would not settle for the, just the random and the petty and the inconsequential, God, but we would settle for nothing less than imaging your holiness wherever we go. Come, Holy Spirit. God, you are good and holy. May we be too.